2 Samuel chapter 9 says, David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show kindness to, the kindness of God to? And Ziba said to the king, there is still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. The king asked him, well, where is he? And Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodabar at the house of Maker, son of Amiel. So David had him brought from the house of Maker, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell face down, and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth. I'm your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you take interest in a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him, and you were to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, your servant will do all my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. And however, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. Dear Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for another opportunity to come together, to worship together, to be unified by your spirit together, and to hear from you together. Lord, would you, uh, would you silence all the other distractions? Where your voice is normally still and small in a quiet whisper, would it be loud, so loud that we can't ignore it? Lord, would we uh, have our ears open to your words? Would we have our eyes open to what you're showing us? Would you give us the ability and a willingness to carry out whatever it is this morning? We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, we may have, uh, you may have heard this before, the, this story, and uh, I, I got to admit, I was probably, I'm 33 now, 26 the first time I heard the name of Phibosheth. Going to Bible college, going to a different school, what Christian school. This is the first time I've ever I was I had ever heard of Mephibosheth, and it has come to be probably one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. And to give you just a little context uh, of where we're going is uh, like, like most books that have been split up in two. Traditionally, uh, for the majority of Christian history, they were regarded as just one book. Uh, they're together from the from the beginning, from First Samuel to Second Samuel. Even though uh, we know that this was not written by one person, it's up to maybe three or four people that had written this. This was written later, obviously, than uh, 
some of the events that have happened here, which some people would say that there's a, a bias written into the scriptures, but I think we know that that means God was trying to tell us something, that this is coherent with the, all of the rest of scripture. Um, and I say that because it's interesting that, uh, at least in, in, in my time of, of study, is I normally like to go to the older writers first to, to, to understand what the original thoughts were of the scriptures. Um, and I don't say that boastfully, but uh, I, I think you know there's a there's a there's a wisdom in going. What was first thought? How was first interpreted? And then how did it trickle down the river? Um, but this, it seems like a majority of people don't want to touch it. Uh, you go to you go to commentaries. You look for you know the book of the Bible. You want to see commentaries on, and a lot of places just leave this whole area blank, uh, and, and that's. F- frustrating, uh, and I say that to say that there wasn't a whole lot of older thoughts that I was able to gather just to see uh, if where God was taking me was lined up with where he took other people. So if you disagree or if you think I'm completely off, please come talk to me. I'd love to tell you that you're wrong, but just know, <laughs> but just know there's, not, there's not an overabundance of research done um, for this spe- specific story, which I also think can kind of make it a bit of an adventure. Um, so uh, if you remember in First Samuel, uh, at the end of it, we have the death of, of Saul, his, his kingdom, his household was destroyed by the Philistines. Uh, he took his, his own life, and the whole book of First Samuel and Second Samuel in this whole time period comes right after the period of the judges where we have the, the famous uh, line that it was a period where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Okay? And now there was a restructuring of God's people being done, mainly through Samuel's leadership as he uh, grew up. And then we have uh, Saul, the king that the people chose. And, uh, and now it's being ushered into a time of the king that God had chosen. So we have an example of, of Saul's life, if you remember. Uh, I won't go into it. You can go read for yourself. But he was not um, the ideal candidate. But he was who the people chose, and that's who the people followed. And then after the death of, of both Saul and, and Jonathan and uh, Saul's line being threatened to be cut off, uh, one of his older sons, Ishbosheth wanted the throne, even though we know that Samuel had already anointed David as the new king. Ishbosheth wanted uh, the throne, so there was about a, a, around a two-year civil war of trying to, trying to go for the throne. And then eventually Ishbosheth was taken out, um, and now David is the new and rightful king. And then as we keep going in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have God's covenant with David where it's clear as day that he was establishing David forever. And we know now that later on David's the line where even Jesus would come through. So God was faithful to his promises. And, uh, and then we get to chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. And between chapter 9 and chapter 20, we have uh, what can... Uh, be called um, a succession narrative. So we have chapter 7 where where, uh, God is making this covenant with David and then we have chapter 8 which is kind of just ties in all the different victories of David that led up to this time of peace that God gives him and we'll talk more about that as we go down the line. So now we see the succession narrative of how God's choice far exceeds the people's choice. So we go to 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul that I can show kindness to for 
Jonathan's sake. So again, now we're in this place where David has established the king. There's no question. And uh, what would happen, uh, which you may have heard of before, that normally, excuse me, when a, a king was at the throne, they wanted to make sure that they stayed on the throne. So any other threats they wanted to squash, anybody trying to get revenge for another line, they wanted to make sure that their reign was going to be substantiated for a while. So it would be common, it would be uh, legal, it would be understandable and even expected for the new king to cover all of his bases and make sure that the old line had been destroyed, that there were no new threats to rise up as he is establishing himself on the throne. But just like our God, in a countercultural fashion, David looks to honor and fulfill past promises. Now, if you'll remember, uh, David had made a few promises, and not just with Jonathan. But first, we'll go to 1 Samuel 24. Um, uh, this is, again, when there's battles going on, when, when Saul is clearly, his reign is declining. And we, it was very common knowledge that David was going to be the new king, and his best friend, uh, David, uh, I mean, David's best friend, Jonathan, had pleaded with him. He said, if my father intends to bring evil on you, this is 1 Samuel 20, if my father intends to bring evil on you, may the Lord punish Jonathan and do so severely if I do not tell you and send you away so that you may leave safely. May the Lord punish me if I don't make sure that you're safe when my dad's going nuts, is, is basically what he's saying. He says, if I continue to live, David, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So, so when you're up here, when, when you've made it, and if I don't make it, please continue to honor our friendship, uh, our love for one another by not cutting off the rest of my family. Which, again, is a normal custom, right? And of course, David honors that. He says, okay, no, no, no problem. But we also see that David's also made a promise with Saul, which we remember is the king who at some point made it his whole mission to kill David. So later on in 1 Samuel 24, he says, now I know for certain that you will be king. This is, this is right after the episode where, where you know, Saul is in the cave and he's relieving himself and, and he's looking for David, brought a bunch of guys to kill David and David sneaks up behind him, cuts off a, a piece of his robe and later as Saul's looking for him, David comes out from the hill and says, hey, I could have had you. And after there's a discourse back and forth and David's like, why are you coming after me? Why do you believe other people thinking that I'm trying to kill you? I'm not leave me alone type of thing. And uh, after discussing this, Saul says, now I know for certain that you will be king. And the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. And so David swore to Saul. So he had these two promises, both Jonathan to his best friend, which was an easy deal, but then also a promise to Saul who continued to go back and forth. Am I for David, against David? Kept trying to, brought men out to, to, to come kill this kid. And there, depending on who you ask, there's at least anywhere between 10 and 20 years between David making this promise to Jonathan and him having the ability to fulfill that promise. So there's a big span of time between making those promises and making it right. 
there's a good chance that if, if anybody had heard this promise, nobody would have remembered it by then. But David's desire was not to just get out of his promises. His desire wasn't even to fulfill the bare minimum of his promise, because what would have been a bare minimum and would have been fully just mind-blowing as it is would be just to let the descendants of Saul and Jonathan live. That now David's on the throne, that they can just continue and not, not be fearful for the life. That would have been love enough. That would have been immense love. That still would have been countercultural love for them to keep their lives. But, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a lot that goes into this one word that we read of kindness, of showing kindness to Jonathan, uh, kindness to the, the, the heirs of Jonathan for his sake. And this kindness uh, is a very uh, uh, packed word in the Hebrew. It, it's called hesed. And, and this, there's nothing like this kind of kindness. Our, our Bible, my Bible, translates it as kindness. Um, the the other, Others of the love of the Lord. But this kindness, it, it's not enough to just say it's a faithful love. That just doesn't, doesn't cut it. And I don't really know how to uh, put it into exact words, but we have some examples of what this, this kindness, this love means. This is the kind of kindness, this love, that David cries out for in Psalm 51. As he's remembering all of his, his, his sins that's always before him, he, he cries out, uh, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. This is the kind of kindness that, that, that God shows Daniel after he's been taken captive um, and the blessing that just ensued while he was in captivity and honored the Lord. In, first Dan- I mean, in Daniel uh, 1.9, it says that God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. If you remember, he was taken with his friends and then they were put into a, to a you know, to be made soldiers of the enemy and part of their thing was the, uh, a specific diet of just the king's food. And most people would take it and, and they decided early on that they weren't going to defile themselves um, before their God. And let's just eat vegetables, let's just drink water, nothing else, and let's see how we do. And God gave him favor that just, that door would stay wide open for the rest of his life. Um, this kindness uh, is the kindness, the love, the compassion that we see between Hosea and Gomer. This, this kind of, it, no matter what you do, this is, this is here, this is established. You read, you read Hosea and that whole testimony, and it just, it, it completely goes against every fiber to just continue to chase after someone who wants nothing to do with you, that disrespects you, that doesn't love you, and that, that love, that chasing, that love and compassion and kindness is the same thing here that J- David is saying he wants to show whoever he can under Jonathan's name. It's more than just, hey, way to go, buddy. See, and this, con- this kindness has everything to do with the giver and nothing to do with the receiver. That's incredibly important. We're going to come back to that. This kindness has everything to do with the giver and nothing to do with the receiver. Chapter 9, go back to verse 2. There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? 
I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, there was still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. Now there is a significance with Ziba, which we'll touch on at the very end, but right now we'll just keep moving. And to be reminded of what this looks like, this story of of Mephibosheth uh, being lame in both of his feet is found in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel. It says, Saul's son Jonathan had a son whose feet were crippled. He was five years old when the report about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, that they were being defeated, that Saul was dead, that Jonathan was dead, and that the Philistine army was now coming. So his nanny, or his nurse, picked him up and fled. But as she was hurrying to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So in hearing about this battle that was going on, the battle which Saul wouldn't return from, that Jonathan wouldn't return from, uh, this nurse uh, that was caring for Mephibosheth went uh, basically to protect him, knowing that the army was going to come this way next. Knowing that the violence would come, and as she's going and taking him, and just in the scurry of being anxious and scared, drops him and breaks both of his legs. Could you imagine? Verse 4. The king asked him, where is he? And Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodabar at the house of Maker, son of Amiel. Now Lodabar has a definition. It kind of varies where different places you look, but, but the, the, the common definition for Lodabar is no pasture. That there's no pasture there. And for us, not being a, a holy agricultural society, we look, okay, that's great, there's no pasture but, uh, but the significance here of what a pasture is, that there's basically, uh, some translations would even say, no pasture, no communication, there's nothing there. There's nothing worth going there for. Okay? And without a pasture, what, what else is there? there, there there's nothing. If you think of a pasture, it, it represents peace. It represents rest. represents life, which we see in... Uh, the famous Psalm 23 of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I have what I want. He lets me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. That's what you want in a place. And Lodabar doesn't have it. So he's in Lodabar and he's in the household of Maker. Now Maker is a descendant of Manasseh. It's a massive, wonderful pedigree coming down from Manasseh to uh, Maker, presumably wealthy, a well-known pedigree, and, and, and for all purposes, more than likely a supporter of Saul's kingdom, which would uh, explain why he's now harboring uh, one of the descendants of Saul in his household. But this boy that with his broken legs can't even stay in his own place. A once heir to the throne now is staying in the house of Maker under his shadow. But there's, a, there's a, a difference in translation here, which I think is really good. Again, it says, you'll find him in Lodabar at the house of Maker. So King David had him brought from the house of Maker to son of Amiel. Now, the version I'm just using now is the Christian standard, but we go back to the King James, the holy King James, and it, it reads, then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Maker. 
Let me ask you a question, church. How many of you have been fetched out by God? The son of Jonathan had to be fetched out because he was hiding, he was afraid, and he was lame. He may have even regarded himself as an enemy of the king at this point. Maybe even bitter, but he was not where he used to live. He was not in the condition he used to be in. And now he's in some rinky-dink, no place, no-nothing town, this whole hiding that he had to be fetched out. How familiar does that sound with your own story? Hmm. But how reminiscent of this of us and even our ancestors of Adam and Eve? Let's, let's try to see the, the connection here in Genesis chapter 3. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord. They had already sinned. They had already eaten. Their eyes had been opened. And then we get here. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so the Lord called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, if we remember, they didn't just have a standing appointment that at 10 a.m. we're going to walk in the garden together, and God goes down and he's like, where is everybody? God knew exactly where Adam and Eve were. And what were they doing? They were hiding. And knowing that they were hiding, he's not just sitting there, he's not waiting. All right, they got to show up at some point. There's only one garden in the whole world. Uh, they they got to they gotta make it back here at some point. God called out to Adam and Eve knowing that they were hiding. And, church, let me tell you, this has been our human condition from the very beginning. Charles Stanley has a, a great thought. He says, being at enmity with God, he, who mankind, concludes that God is his enemy and dreads his presence. When we think that there's something wrong, when our relationship with the Lord is, is broken, when we, when we recognize we've done something to break that bond, our reaction is to hide Our reaction is not, oh, if I could just be back in God's presence. No, we run from it. When we're in opposition with God, either by our inheritance from Adam or by our own free will, we run. We hide. And God's presence is the last place that we want to be. Unfortunately, but amen. So this son of Jonathan, as well as the sons of Adam... We have, to be, we have to be fetched. We both share a lame disposition before God before he fetches us, right? But think about Mephibosheth. He had no ability in his current state to, him, to improve his standing in the kingdom. There was nothing he could do about it. He was absolutely unable to make the first move. Aren't we all? Now, it doesn't matter where you stand in terms of uh, Calvinist, Arminian, all that. That doesn't matter. The fact is, God needed to raise you from the dead. Dead people don't just get up. Amen? Sorry. Getting excited. Um, 
And here's the other thing. The king fetched him exactly where he was. There was no precondition of, listen, go try to find this kid. Uh, If you find him, tell him to meet me over there by sunset. And if he makes it there, he's going to get a prize. No! And God doesn't do that with us either. If you get to a certain place of righteousness, if you grab yourself by those bootstraps and manage to get to the back of that room, then things will be okay. Just get there. I just need you to do something. I need a little bit of investment from you. God does not do that, church. So here's a message to the seeker, to someone who, who's struggling with the fact that, that God is real. You need to stop requiring yourself to get to a particularly correct place before you can know God. It's not going to happen. You know why? Because you don't have the legs. And to the Christian, you need to stop requiring others to get to a certain level of righteousness before they're worth your time. That makes you a Pharisee. We do that. We've been given grace. We've been given... We've, God calls us, God fetches us exactly where we are. We have nothing to do with it. That's what my Bible says. Even our faith is in our own. Our faith is, is the faith of Jesus. And we love and we, we love the joy and we take full advantage of it. But then when it comes to other people, you, you don't smell enough like Jesus for me to go over there for. You don't have the morals and the principles that I have. I, I don't know if I can spend some time with you. I don't want any of that on me. Chapter 9, verse 6. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell face down, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. The king knew his name. This kid who's had his broken leg since five years old, once was an heir to the throne, now in no pasture, in nowhere where nothing happens, in somebody else's household, in the dark, in a hole, and the king knew his name. And let me ask you, is there any other response to being fetched by God? Is there any other acceptable response to being fetched by God? You know, we could have had a different story if Mephibosheth uh, comes to the king and he's like, man, it's about time. I've been waiting for you to come get me. I knew you and my dad were tied. I was just waiting. You know, it's about time, David. He said, oh, I'm, I'm so glad someone finally recognized that I'm more than just no legs. I got, I got some arms. We can do some stuff together. No. He fell face down before his king. If you're fetched by the king, you should fall on your face. Amen? Now, and just imagine the fear, the trembling, the guilt, the shame, the anxiety, even the confusion that Mephibosheth would have been experiencing. And think to yourself, have you experienced this before your king? I hope so. This is such a, a clear picture of the sinner finally being in the presence of the Almighty God. 
verse 7, don't be afraid, said David. Doesn't this sound so familiar? You hear, don't be afraid. I, I don't know about you, and again, this is not to brag, but at least in my adult years, I don't think I've ever come face to face with someone where I'm just like so scared that they have to tell me, don't be afraid. Just hasn't, it just hasn't happened. My dad with a belt, that's a different story. But now as I'm an adult, it, it doesn't happen as often. Um, but the screams of the immeasurable and unique and unfathomable grace of God. Charles Stanley also writes, he has a wonderful book called uh, Mephibosheth or the Kindness of God. He says, man shows kindness to those who, as he thinks, deserve it. David could have responded in a number of ways to Mephibosheth. As he's trembling there, he's like, all right, just get out of your system. It's good. That's the right response. Get up. But he doesn't do that. Just like, just like uh, you know, the whole don't be afraid piece, going to, you know, fast forwarding to, to when the angel comes to Mary and she's trembling and he says, don't be afraid. In Luke chapter 1, the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by the statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. And the angel told her, don't be afraid. Same thing when the angel came to the shepherds, don't be afraid. And David here says to Mephibosheth, who maybe has every right to be afraid, says, don't be afraid. Since I intend to show you kindness for your father's sake. And again, it just blows my mind that he would show this kind of love and kindness to him. The people, we, we, we always have some type of rubric, some type of different standards and categories of the level of love we would show other people. Even with the most, and we, you know, we know some very loving, giving people, but even with the most giving, the most loving, the most unassuming person, we always have some type of threshold, some type of threshold of love and kindness. Because I tell you this is true, and this is not to offend you. If it doesn't, I'm sorry. This is not to call out anyone in particular. But I'm telling you, not every single homeless person you see is given money from your wallet. Right? We have some threshold. I don't know about you, but I'll just be transparent. I get caught in my own mind wondering, are they legit? Are they really homeless? Are they scamming me? Were they really kicked out of this place? Not every person you recognize is upset or going through something or something going through something. Not everybody's comforted by you. You you ever see somebody clearly upset and you just all right, not doing that today. Not everybody who calls you you pick up for. Right? You get home from a long day, you just ate, you sit down on the couch, and then this person... Nope. We all have that standard. We choose who deserves our love and our kindness. We, we, we put people... Uh, we, we make a certain standard for people to have to reach before they get an, uh, the unending love from us. And again... This kindness that David is trying to show or wanting to show has everything to do with the giver and nothing with the receiver. Mephibosheth did nothing. There was nothing shiny about him. 
to catch his attention. Everything that Mephibosheth would have had, the relationship, the position in his kingdom, before the sin and consequences of his ancestors, is now his. We have the same story, church. Everything that was promised to us before Adam and Eve, once God fetches us and we fall face down, now we get all of that. But too often times we look at the things we don't have right here, right now. We look at our situation, we look at our bank account, we look at our relationship. Even worse, we look at other people's bank accounts and other people's relationships. And that's what we put. Even in the church, that stuff doesn't just happen outside of here. That stuff, that, <laughs> that mess happens here. Man. Yet now, the only place where Mephibosheth would eat, the only place where he would be nourished, where he would be taken care of and find his rest is with the king at his table. We would be wise as believers, as heirs, to remember that we can no longer be satisfied anywhere else other than the king's table. It's not going to come from some self-help book. It's not going to come from anywhere else. It's not going to come from some other community. It's not going to come from some other worldview. Our, our satisfaction, our rest, our comfort, our peace, our assurance is only going to come from the king's table as long as we live. And as long as you keep looking other places, you're going to be disappointed. This reminds me of the prodigal son, right? Mephibosheth would have been happy enough to enter the house as a servant, which he said to the king, I am your servant. He would have been happy with that. But both the father of the prodigal and King David establishes their status as an heir and nothing less. The same is true with you. Again, let's go back to the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup then overflows, and goodness and faithful love will, pers will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. This is where we are. Verse 8. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me. What's interesting here is this is the same language David used earlier with Saul, Mephibosheth's grandfather. In 1 Samuel 24, he, again, the same episode where he cut off the, the piece of the robe and now they're talking about it. Uh, uh, David is pleading to him and he says, my hand will never be against you, Saul. Who has the king Israel of Israel come after? What are you chasing after, a dead dog? A single flea? He says, who am I? What, what status do I have? You're up here. I'm a nothing. I'm a nobody to catch your attention. David says the same thing to Saul and Mephibosheth is now saying it 
to David. And this is a genuine response. This is a genuine humility right here. This isn't a, oh, Eeyore. Like, this is a real, who am I? And we can ask that question. It's okay to do that. In fact, you should at some point. God, who am I? If, if God fetches you and you fall face down and you're like, man, I was hoping you would see that I could do that. God's not looking at you wondering, uh, okay, who am I going to save next? Oh, they can do that. They could do that. Oh, they're really good at He would be a nice addition. Come on up here, buddy. You win the prize. That doesn't happen. It's good for us to ask, who am I, God? That you've now given me an, an, an inheritance, and I did nothing to deserve it, that now I can spend eternity with you, that you would send your own son to die in my place, to take away all of my sin, all of my guilt, all of my shame, that I can have an eternal relationship with you. Who am I? But we can't stay there. While it's always good to remember and acknowledge that we have no fascinating quality that caught God's attention, staying here becomes a genuine humility to a false humility, and I'll tell you what I mean. How inappropriate would it be down the road, 10, 15, 20 years, Mephibosheth is in the house of David having his gazillionth meal at his table and says, you know, king, I don't really know why you like me. I don't have any legs. The, the, the relationship has already been established. We've already established the fact that there was nothing about him that earned his spot at the table, right? And a lot of times we do this to ourselves and get into a, a depression. I know with, with me, I've always struggled with a sense of assurance that there's got to be something I've done that was just wrong enough for God to be like, you're out of here. But, but our Bible doesn't say that. We know that there's nothing about us that caught God's attention. Yet we can discourage ourselves when we continue to remember that we don't have anything that appealed to God. But he did that for a purpose. Because it's not about you, Christian. It's not about what you did to earn the grace. You may have looked at your poor lame walk until you have said in your heart, I surely cannot be a child of God at all. You never can get peace by looking at your lame feet. Put them under the table. Look at that which God in his infinite grace has spread the table. Let's rejoice, and now let's keep moving. Let's not keep focusing on who we used to be. Let's focus on the inheritance that we have and who God considers us to be now. Amen? Hmm. See, we can't, we can't look at our salvation We can't look at our inheritance as sons and daughters and remain discouraged, confused, depressed, or anxious at the fact that at no point can we earn a seat at the table. We need, I'm only saying this from personal experience that I can do this. But if we do this, we miss out on a joy that we've been given. Now listen, you were not given a seat at the table to focus on why you shouldn't be there. Amen? (laughs) verse 9 then the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family you your sons and your servants are to work the ground for him and you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat but Mephibosheth your master's grandson is always to eat at my table 
Now, this is, this, is, this is interesting as we're winding down here, that there's a noticeable difference between Ziba and Mephibosheth, which I never would have looked at outside of studying it. But now let's look at Ziba for a second. His name. There's a meaning. There's always a meaning. There's always some definition. And Ziba, uh, I, don't, I don't even know how to say it in the Hebrew, but the meaning is statue. Okay, that's what his name means, statue. Now, what comes to mind when you think of a statue? You think of uh, something strong, made out of something solid, something persistent. Uh, when you come in front of a statue, you tend to contemplate on what was or what could have been or what it's supposed to represent. And a, a statue, in uh, all of its fullness, is limited, is a very limited reflection of what they represent. Okay, is that a decent definition of a, of a statue? Now, this servant, Ziba, even in all of his faithfulness, the king had a question, Ziba stepped up and answered. Uh, he was faithful to this king, even though he was the servant of the old king. He was a helper, he had a do-good attitude, he may have even had a nice disposition, but nothing in this text tells us that he was able to eat at the king's table. He was still never to abide with the king. He had his own place. He was doing what he was doing, but now from over there, now he's doing it over here. But there's no, there's nothing that Mephibosheth got that Ziba also gets. The statue. Do statues go anywhere? Mm -mm. See, it, it was the grace of the king that pulled the son out of hiding discouraged his fear, made him an heir, and asked him for nothing in return to make this deal legitimate. There was nothing on Mephibosheth's end that David said, okay, you're in here. Now that you're here, we got to just talk about some, you need, to, you need to keep up the status. I mean, I did my part. I brought you in. But now you got to, you, you, you got to earn it a little bit. That didn't happen. That's not how the conversation went. There was nothing but, but grace on the side of the giver towards the receiver that established this new relationship, right? But yet, there was not one word of grace to Ziba, the servant. Ziba didn't get the same thing. Ziba didn't do anything wrong. He's a nice guy. He did nice things. He took care of his family. He probably had some morals. He probably gave to a charity every once in a while. But there's absolutely none of that same grace, that loving kindness that has said given to Ziba. And yet on the flip side, there wasn't a single command given to Mephibosheth to make this deal legitimate. There is a massive contrast here. And you may say that's not fair, but it's all about the giver, not about the receiver. See, even though Ziba, Ziba the servant, he was loyal, but was given nothing that Mephibosheth was given, we often are tempted to equate loyalty with grace. I'll say that again. Oftentimes we can be tempted to equate loyalty with grace. Then that becomes a works-based salvation. Can't do that. It's, it's to our downfall if we do that. And it's through our downfall if we require other people to do that. Prove yourself to God, and, and then maybe, maybe, maybe I'll consider you. It doesn't work like that, church. Let's not do that. Let's not be the kind of people who hold others to a standard that we aren't held to. Now, the, the point of this is 
We have a grace that we've been given as believers. That should be freeing, that we don't have to continue to upkeep it. You don't have to every year go back and take the test to be saved. It's there. It's locked in. It's a done deal. But loyalty and grace are not the same thing. A lot of times we wonder and we get people, friends, that ask questions, well, what about someone who's, who's good? What about good people? Why can't they go to heaven? Just because they don't go to church, they don't believe in God, they don't believe in Jesus. What's so bad about them? It's the grace of the giver. That's the piece that we focus on. That's the piece that we focus on in our Christian lives, but I'm going to tell you, that's what we should focus on when we deal with other people, the grace not the legalism, not a standard that we created. When the Pharisees asked, uh, asked Jesus, what, what are the greatest commandments? And he wasn't just, they weren't just talking about the ten. They were talking about the hundreds that they had added to it. And Jesus boils it all down to love God, love others. Let's not add to it. See, faithfulness, morality, loyalty, even biblical principles... Sound judgment are not the starting point that we should be after. His grace is what we should be after, and his grace is what we should be replicating. Nothing else. Almost done here. This is my last point, again, to the seeker, to the wanderer, to the person who's open but, but, but reserved in, in wanting this relationship with God, looking for something. You need to stop working your way to God. You need to stop hiding. You need to stop trying to develop some attribute or skill to catch God's attention because once again, you don't have the legs. God knows where you are and he knows your name. So when he fetches you, fall on your face. And to the Christian, recognize and rejoice in the fact that you have been fetched that is the right word, by the way. There's not a fauched or anything. It's fetched. I looked it up. <laughs> Rejoice in this unbelievable grace and look to share that with the world. Share that with your family. Share that with your community. Let's get rid of all of your own conditions that have been tacked on. And if someone comes to your mind during all of this, so you're thinking of, who, who is it that I, that I you know, have the least amount of patience for? That comes to mind uh, when I'm like, okay, uh, I really wish that they cleaned themselves up a little bit. That would make it a lot easier to be friends with you or try to disciple you. Uh, who, who comes to mind of someone that you're like, man, if only they sm- smelled more like a Christian and less like the world. That would make things, whoever you're thinking about, go fetch them. Church, our commission is not to have people come to us. Our commission is to go. And don't go with all this other baggage that you're carrying. Leave all that back there because God forgave that a long time ago. He didn't come and fetch that. He came to fetch you. And we're going to fetch them. Not throw a nice blanket of Christianity on them and say, all right, now, let's go. Go get them, church. Dearly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you so much for your, your precious Word. We thank you for the message of, of your unbelievable, just unfathomable grace, your fetching grace. 
when we hold that before us and nothing else? In our relationship with you, would we be secure? Would we be assured that there is nothing you have put on us? Lord, let's run with that grace. Let's take that to the world. Let's take that to our family. Let's take that to our community. Let's take that to our jobs and our relationships, Lord. Give us the ability to shed off all the other things we've tacked onto your grace. Bring us to be your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, church. It is wonderful to be with you this morning. I hope you heard from the Lord. And bless you in your, the rest of your Sunday. Amen?